Hello, I'm Devin Moore. I'm a Humanity Rising Ambassador and the founder of Hashtag Race to Speak Up, an anti-bullying organization. Humanity Rising is a student-led movement to create a better world through service. We help students find their service passion and give them a voice to help them share what they're doing to make a positive difference in the world. In recognition of MLK Day 2021, Humanity Rising will host the MLK Challenge Race to Create Unity, inviting students to, in the greater Chicago area to submit their solutions to bullying in peace. You can go to our website, humanityrising.org, and you'll see a link to the MLK Challenge on our homepage. Easy to participate and scholarship opportunities Welcome to our Creating World Peace Through Humanity Rising Voices podcast series, hosted by Steve Sarowitz. We're really excited to have you guys here today. Joining Steve is Alan Ruppel. Alan founded Uni Unity in Motion. He built this program from a Baha'i-inspired free karate class for low-income youth to a nonprofit corporation that works with Milwaukee Central City youth from adolescence to adulthood ensuring that they reach their full potential. There will be time for Q&A and now I'll turn it over to Steve to begin. Thank you, Devin. Alan, it's a pleasure to meet you. We've been working together, but we hadn't met each other yet until tonight. And um, I guess, why don't you uh, start us off and just tell us what inspires you and, and how you think your work is relevant in today's atmosphere. The world is moving in the direction of unity. I see it in our youth and it inspires me and it gives me strength and hope. I, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I did not start this thinking it would turn into a full nonprofit that takes, that works with youth from adolescence all the way through their post-educational <laughs> dreams. Um, it started uh, when, I, when I, I, I was a Baha'i at the Baha'i Center in Milwaukee. And I wanted to start a program to help youth. And I had just gotten a black belt in karate was an interest at the time. And I thought, well, you know, it's a good tool for helping kids if you take out the fighting um, and you focus on the self-esteem and, and discipline it brings. And it can bring a lot of youth together. But, you know, kids that need, often need it the most can't afford it. It can get very expensive. So I started a free karate class and I used the Baha'i Center space at the time. And that was what I was planning to do. You know, that was going to be my way of, of giving back and sharing because, you know, we can talk unity and we can uh, wish for unity and we can pray for unity. That's all important things, but we have to actually take action at some point. And at that point, that's what I wanted to do. That's the action I was going to take. All this came out of that thought all those years ago. And so that's very interesting. You said action. And I think that's really key in this world because a lot of people are saying they're putting signs up in their yards, at least in my hometown, Black Lives Matter. We have one in our yard that says Black Lives Matter. And you're seeing these things. Actually, years ago, very sadly in my town, I put up a couple of Black Lives Matter signs and they were taken away. They disappeared. And right. now you can put them up and at least they won't disappear. And, and a lot of people have them in my hometown, but you, the sign is great, but what else are you doing? And that's what I'm telling people now is you just can't do put up a sign. You just can't say Black Lives Matter. What are you doing to make sure, because there's, there's a lot of systemic inequities that we have to correct. So well, I agree with you. Uh, I think when you look at a systemic inequity, there's obviously uh, the oppressor and the oppressed. 
Now, that word oppressor, so many of us that are in what would be quoted or uh, referred to as the privileged class don't see ourselves that way. And we don't mean to be that way. And we don't think that way. But the reality is we have been, we don't start out on an equal footing when it comes to family life, when it comes to economic opportunity, it comes to safety in our streets, the ability to worship and, and, and believe and act the way you want without a lot of other factors. Um, so who is it de really dependent upon to go out of their comfort zone? Is it on the oppressed to get out of their comfort zone, take all the risks? Or is it really also incumbent upon those who would be in the more privileged area to get out of their comfort zone and take the risk? So a sign, like you said, is awesome, but where are you out of your comfort zone? Not really, you may get a little scorn from neighbors or whatever. And now, of course, they've turned it into a political statement to try and co-opt the message. But in the end, it's us in the, in the, that we're born with the more privilege that it's incumbent upon to take those risks, those sacrifices and reach out to those that weren't given those privileges or it won't work. And, and be patient. Um, the Baha'i writings say we have to be patient. And so I started doing this work about six years ago. Uh, when my company went public, I started doing philanthropy and I thought, well, this will be easy. I'll just love people and I'll give them some money and we'll do these programs. And, and I realized over time that there's some injuries that occur when you're beating someone up for over 400 years. Yes. And so you have to be prepared for someone to maybe not trust you as much, maybe not even like you at first and you're not maybe give you the time of day because you look like exactly like the, the last 17 people who let them down. And why are you any different? Awesome point. And that's exactly why, you know, that's a great segue because that's exactly why I changed the focus of unity in motion. We started out like most organizations or, or uh, programs, this happened to be a socioeconomic program of the Baha'i faith that has, has a dream and has a good idea or has a passion and we want to help somebody. Right. And so Mine happened to be martial arts at the time. It could be music, it could be dance, it could be many things, right? And you wanna help this, this group. Um, but over time I realized really that's not what's needed here. What it's needed, it's important and we need more of it. Let, let me re rephrase that. But what the most important thing is that relationship. And so it's the relationship over time that makes the difference. We're good at evangelization, um, you know, as we know in the Baha'i faith, there is no proselytizing, but in some ways we're good at getting the message out, getting talked about. What about that discipleship? What about building that relationship and staying with it over time? That's what changes people. And so I changed the focus of Unity Emotion from a program that, off, uh, that offers uh, martial arts or adding other things to it, dance and other things we did, and I moved it into a relationship. The most important thing is that relationship and to start as young as you can and stay with them all the way. And we built our programming and services around that relationship. And what's interesting is all the programming and services we have, it, no, martial arts is no longer one of them. It was just the stepping stone that started it. That's how life works. You know, that's the, uh, you know, the, the butterfly is no longer a caterpillar. No. And, you know, oh, the embryo yeah. goes through many different, you know, as the embryo is turning into a person, the embryo goes through many different shapes and they're all discarded, but the end is us. Right. Right. And, and that's why we, we, we base our success on how well we kept that relationship going and were they, were we able to allow them and, and work with them to meet their goals and what kind of person did they turn out to be? Right. 
So we're not, we have a values class and a Baha'i comes in and speak and, and, and leads that. And we have other, we, we allow, well, in my mind, I'm gonna be honest with you, I, after 20 years uh, since I de, uh, started this, when people ask me what religion I am uh, and they go, are you Christian? I go, yes. Are you Muslim? Yes. Are you Baha'i? Yes. Because we spend so much time looking for differences, so much time trying to get our message across when we're actually saying a lot of the same things. Watch what we do. Watch, I always say, watch what a person does, then ask them what they are. Well, you know what, Abdul, you, you've been a Baha'i longer than me. You know what Abdul Baha said to be a Baha'i is simply, do you know that one? Yes. Uh, I don't remember the quote offhand, but he, he brings all the religions together, which is what one builds. You know, but I, my concern is we often, uh, even in the faith, they, we spend a lot of time trying to get people to come to this class and, and saying and doing these things when we should be reaching out and saying yes, rather than let me show you my thing. Yes, as well as Abdu'l-Baha would say. And I can't do the exact quote anymore because to be honest with you, uh, it's been a while since I studied that part because I'm trying to really stay, you know, although I did read some answered questions recently. <clears throat> um, let me read the quote. This is a quote I really love from Abdu'l-Baha. To be a Baha'i simply means to love all the world, to love humanity and try to serve it and to work for universal peace and universal brotherhood. Yes. And so, of course, now I could have said to be a Christian, to be a Jew, to be a Muslim, it would have been the exact same quote. It's one religion. That's what I always tell people. It's one religion. I said, you're, you know, you want to argue about which chapter is better in the book, chapter one, two, three or four. It's the same book mm -hmm. and the same author, because the ultimate author is not Muhammad of the Quran or, the, you know, the Bible is not written by Jesus. Um, and the Baha'i writings are not written by Baha'u'llah. They're written by God through Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah is the pen, but mm -hmm. God is the author. And it's what lives inside the heart in the end that matters. Yeah. It's and, not but, what we say. But there's only one God according to all the religions. So if there's only one God, there can really truly only be one religion. And it just gets renewed over the ages. Yeah. And, and it's foolish to argue it. It's just so foolish. Well, I won't argue with you. <laughs> That's actually what attracted me to the faith back. Uh, it was, I heard about it 35 years ago. And the idea, because I was raised Jewish, I, I just didn't understand why are Jews wrong and are right and Christians wrong or Christians right and Jews wrong. That didn't make sense. And so when this Baha'i came in and told me about progressive revelation, I was like, oh, that makes more sense. Yeah. I mean, we don't have to kill each other and beat each other over the head with clubs. We could actually love each other, which I think that's what Moses and Jesus were saying. I mean, maybe I missed something, but I thought they said to love thy neighbor. And, and I don't recall them giving us any exceptions, but you seem to have exceptions. So that was confusing to me. Yeah. When we move it from the heart level to the intellect level, it's too easy to, to lose sight of what we're actually about. Yeah. So, and as you're really saying, and I think what you're really saying is religion is the application. It's not the, just the words on the paper. It's not what you say. It's what you are and how you live. That's the, that's the true religion. It is. And I think we, you know, we, uh, myself, I'm being older, not you, um, can really learn from our teenagers. Did you ever see when they get together? They're not interested in arguing theology. They're, not, they're looking at connecting. They're looking at bonding. Even what Devin said with his uh, uh, intro, the, the organization he founded is interested in bonding. It's interesting in getting to a new level. It's as people get older and they get set in their ways and they get set in, in their fear almost, um, that that starts to come out. And so I always find such inspiration working with the teenagers because it's so pure. 
in so many ways. And they're looking for spiritual guidance. I, I find that uh, our world, we become a very material world. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you have that problem up in Milwaukee as well. Oh, yes. Well, material things in and of itself, as you know, um, are not the issue. It's our application, our, our, our detachment, our, our attachment to them for our, that, that we use to bring about, to ward off fear and to feel good and status about ourselves are the issue. They can be used for so much good. Um, one of the hardest things I do is go out and ask other people, yourself included, it has been so generous, to help me help other people. And it can be a very, very difficult thing because people sometimes take it very personal, like, well, you want my money, what are you gonna? And I'm like, I'm giving it away. I'm, I'm using it for good, but it's like this almost attack on them. Like, how dare I take advantage of that? Well, it's, I'll just tell you from the other side, I'm getting asked for money all the time. So- Constantly, I bet. Constantly, yes. And so for me, I'm very happy when I find someone like you who's doing the work that I want to give to. So yes. actually it's a joy to find you because as much as I'm asked for money, there's a, and there's a lot of good ideas, but a lot of these ideas are probably not something I would support. Right. Um, to me, it's hard to really find the nonprofits that, that really fit into my ideals that are run right. And there's just a lot, as Laura, you know, Laura asked you a lot of questions because we're trying to get people that are sustainable, that you've been doing this for a while, that you're doing the work. The ideal for us is somebody who's doing the work and just needs a little bit of money. It sounds like that would be easy to find, but it's actually not that easy to find. I wanted to stop for one second and I know Devin, I can feel his passion just in his typing. Um, Devin says, we are all part of one race, the human race. That is one meaning of race to speak up. We need to unite. And- um, Couldn't have said it better. Devin, uh, Devin is uh, amazing, amazing. Do you know Devin's story? I do not. So Devin himself was bullied. And instead of giving up, he created his own nonprofit. As a teenager, he creates his own nonprofit. And so he's, and he was bullied over race. And he, he um, really said, I'm not going to take this. I don't want other people to suffer like I did. So he just an amazing heart to do that. And maturity too, to do that at such a young age, to turn Devin has, you know, I'm impressed. You've taken the, the, we often take the worst thing that happened to us and we let it define us. You've taken the worst thing that happened to you and you've driven, you've become it's opposite. You've taken it as not your greatest tragedy, but the, maybe the best thing that happened to you in the long run, because look who you're going to help as you go through life. It's amazing. I met Devin's family, his parents, and, and I can see why Devin turned out the way he did. Go ahead. <laughs> That's Devin. awesome. Thank you, Steve. Just one more, one thing that I wanted to add on to that is just that I mean, I'm glad that I definitely took that negative and turned it into a positive because even if what it say that didn't happen, I still think that I would still be trying to help others and help the youth. But that really gave me something to work off of. That gave me a reason to, it, it opened my eyes to the fact that there are so many different people, the youth and even adults too, that are getting bullied. And I want to be a part of that positive change to in bullying or just put um, reduce the amount of bullying that happens in schools. That's an awesome, awesome uh, uh, idea. No, I shouldn't say idea, that's an awesome passion because it's so needed in this world. And I think really what we need to do is infuse the, the students with 
the, the spiritual virtues because ultimately that's getting it right at the cause. You know, we often are, it's just, we are spiritual beings. We're supposed to lift ourselves up and we're happy and joyous when we're uplifted spiritually. When we're doing, when, when we're practicing love and kindness and compassion and mercy and, you know, it, life doesn't have to be so hard. What's interesting is I think it's like you gave someone the wrong recipe and, and don't understand why things taste bad at the end. Mm-hmm. One of the things we're doing, well, what we do now in Unity in Motion is we take, uh, we start with eight-year-olds and we have 40% Caucasian, 40% African-American, 20% Latino with other in there. That's rough. You know, we, we mirror the, the, the census of Milwaukee County and we take them to a neutral site, a camp site in this, for a, a couple weeks in summer. And we spend time bonding and they become best friends by the time they leave. And the reason we start so young is, you know, it's very vogue now in corporations to have diversity training and so on. It's needed. But now you're intervening. You're taking a belief already, something that's already been inside a person and, and settled, and you're trying to change it. That's very, very difficult. If you prevent it, if you start at eight years old and then they start to see what's happening with Devin and they go, that just makes no sense. I have not experienced that. My best friend comes from this area in Milwaukee and I, and they, we have year on programs for us that are always staying in contact, right? And it is very spiritual. Without uh, choosing one religion over the other, it becomes, a, it's very spiritual because in the end, that's the only thing that's gonna have them survive the trials. It's the only thing that matters in the end. Yes, it's easy for us to say who have a material means and so on, of course they need that. Right. Um, but in the end, without spiritual, it's all meaningless. But you have to be able to take care of that part first before you can often get to the higher one. When you look at the history of religion. Um, and so I do believe the greatest thing you can give someone get, as a gift is that spirituality. Yes. Um, all the religions started off in really tough places. Like, for example, Islam started off in, in Arabia, which was torn apart. They were burying their daughters alive was such an awful place. And, and the whole country very quickly and the whole Arabian Peninsula, Peninsula unites in it. And within a hundred years, they've united all the way to, from Persia all the way up into Spain. It's all united and it's all under Islam. It, it, now, some of it was by the sword you know, back then, but still it, it was this incredibly united and verdant and successful empire for over 500 years. And so religion is this very powerful force for good. If you look at um, the, in Iran, um, where the Baha'is have been persecuted mercilessly, um, in those few seconds, where, wherever the Baha'is are able to grab a, a foothold, just a little foothold, then it's not a military foothold, just, just really to live and breathe. Um, what happened in the early history of the faith is, um, I, you probably know this, Alan, the Baha'is by and large were from the poorer classes, oh. and yet they arose to be very, very prominent very quickly within a generation. And one of the big things is that Baha'is were educating women yeah. in a culture and society that did not. Well, and uh, most religions start with the poor because they're, they're, more, uh, they're willing to listen. Once you have the materials, you're, you shut down. The rich, you know, the, in the Christian faith, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know, I was at Medina during Hajj. I was in a, in a uh, mosque that is four city blocks long, holds a million men. They're not even telling you how many women. I was one of the last ones to get in. I was the only Caucasian, and they say probably the only one that hasn't declared for the Muslim faith. It was awesome. 
they were singing in Arabic. I was a little behind everybody. They'd stand up, I stand up, I'd kneel in. You know, you could probably tell it was me. I was dressed in the traditional garb though. And, uh, you know, and I loved it. It was beautiful. It was so spiritual. I walked out and there was a, with the, uh, somebody I was with that spoke English and he said, you want me to explain what they said? And I said, sure. And he started explaining it and really immediately my, I put my guard up. Wait, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't, Inst and I stopped myself. I said, it was the experience of what I just experienced, that spirituality with a million Muslim men and I'm the only Caucasian that was so beautiful. I don't need to intellectually go back and forth on what they were singing. You probably weren't the only Caucasian. Um, at that, well, the only one they said that, that, that we saw, it was, it was uh, a couple of years ago, uh, but I don't know, maybe I wasn't. But well, I didn't see anybody because we walked around that whole place and we never saw another Caucasian. There are Caucasian Muslims. So that's, you know, right. that was one of the big things that Malcolm X saw that surprised him. Yeah. Um, you go to Europe and, and there's places in, the, in Europe and in, in uh, like Russia, southern, right, where, the, where the Soviet Union was, there's, there's Muslims who are Caucasian. Oh, I'm sure there was, but there's a million and a half people. I didn't get to see them all. <laughs> yeah. You didn't get to interview each one. No, I didn't. Well, I didn't you know, I, they, was, they were from Africa. It was during Hajj. So they go to Medina first, then they go to Mecca. And I didn't go to Mecca because they said I could have, but you really have to declare as a Muslim. And I didn't obviously wouldn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. I said, sure, you know, but not going to declare like that. And uh, so, you know, but they go to Medina first and that's where the, the huge population was at the time. It was cool to go all the way through Saudi Arabia like that. It's, um, you know, every religion is beautiful. And not only that, every country is beautiful, um, all people. So, you know, you go to different countries and different cultures, and they're all beautiful. Um, one of the things you talked about was um, early on in our conversation, you were talking about um, kind of this relationship that you have to develop. Right. And I think that's really important because without the relationship, it's the other, it's them. And when that relationship happens, and you're talking about that with eight-year-olds, so explain, explain why that's so important to have relationship. Well, you know, over time, we, as everybody, we, we, we start to get a worldview. And it's based on our experiences and what's going on in our, our families, in our neighborhoods, and then ultimately what we see in the world on television or what we visit. And we, we already set our patterns, right? And it starts with mistrust and there's huge mistrust between the races. And I think you brought it up earlier, Steve, it's not enough to get, uh, give money and expect people to be all joyful and everything. There's a lot of mistrust, a lot of fear. And so I sometimes say, you know, you're guilty until proven innocent and not in, in reality. You're, you're, you're going to be watched and you're going to be scrutinized. But over time, once people feel the, the, the caring, they feel the love you're giving them. They, they, they start to trust it. Some of them may go, well, you're different than all the others, but they notice the difference. Others start to realize that maybe they were wrong putting everybody in one group. And so love trumps everything. It does. Um, I won't put so a political you, statement on that. You just used that word and I, I won't use it again, but yeah. you just reminded me that we've just gone through this very tumultuous election. And so... You know, there's a lot of, uh, it's been, you know, many people didn't sleep. They were very excited about it. And, and you know, as, as I do, that Baha'is um, really don't participate that way in, in partisan no. politics. Um, at least we're not supposed to, not to say that there wasn't a Baha'i who, do, who didn't. But uh, for the most part, Baha'is kind of stayed to the sidelines. We voted, we had our opinions, 
but you weren't seeing Baha'is really engaging in arguments about politics, but our country was almost still to this point is still very divided. I think, you know, 70 some million in this side and 70 some million on that side, fairly evenly divided actually between the two parties. And how do we get through that divide? How do we, how do we get through? Because, um, you know, the Bible says a house uh, divided cannot stand. And I, I believe that. I believe America is a house divided. And, and race is kind of in the middle of that, too. You know, there's a lot of racially charged things going back and forth. How do we, how do we untangle that mess? It's interesting, because you bring that up. Um, in my role, in my job over the last 20 years, is I can spend, I, I say it's kind of cool, because in one hour, I'll be with people who are on the lowest economic scale, generally African-American, dealing with drugs, violence, gangs, being shot at, every single kid I've met from fourth grade on has been part of a shooting or seen one or so on. And then I can drive less than a half an hour and I'll be at the richest area in Milwaukee working with a donor. And their political beliefs are on other sides of the spectrum, no question. Yet there's a common bond, a common caring that drives them to want to help. They may not understand it. They may have their views on what they need to do. These kids need to do that. The kids need to do that. But there's, if you get to the point where they connect with you and they see you care and they feel they can make a difference on each side, they will bond beyond that. The race will always be there. The economics will always be there right now. But there's that bigger one that they bond on. I always say, you know, what do I have in, people say, what do you have in common with an African-American woman who grew up in the city and, and is living in poverty. And I say, I love their child like they do. And once they realize I love their child, I, they will be my partner. Well, I think that we are so much, we're so human. I, I was I actually, um, my wife is Catholic and we were in this uh, Catholic discussion group with a couple of, with um, three Catholics and a Baha'i. Okay. Uh, and uh, sounds like a joke like well, three glasses Baha'i walk into a room and we'll, I'm kidding go ahead it's, yeah it is um, but I showed them this uh, commercial actually it was for a church where people start in boxes and they look like you know they, they put them like they thought they should be sorted and then they said well what about this experience and who had this experience and who had that experience and who thinks that and they of course jumbled it all up and then at the end they said we're all one human family just like Devin said yeah. and so at the end of the day, when we get into each other's living rooms and we, we invite each other into each other's homes and we start sharing a meal together, you know, there's, there's a huge percentage of Americans who look like you and I who don't have any black friends and, and vice versa. Yeah. And so that's when the distrust and the anger, because you can't, once you, you know, sometimes if you get to know someone, you like them less. So I apologize to anybody that that's happened with me, but, um, you know, you, for the most part, um, when you get to know people, they become friends and they become like family and, you know, you trust them, you love them and you realize that they're not the, the this is where, and if you're, you've read that letter from the Universalist of Justice that came out in July, where it says no one can be looked upon as the other. And I, yeah. I just love mine. One of my funniest things on that was uh, I had a, uh, I actually have a son that's Latino and uh, from Guatemala, he was six months. And then I, we had a homeless youth at Community Emotion that we brought in at age 11. Um, just happened to work out, right? And, uh, uh, you know, so I've, I've, I've had a lot of racial in my house and even though I live in a suburb right now. And uh, 
so I was at a, a conference, uh, not a conference, uh, activity for Unity Motion the other day, and some and this kid came up from this school, and later there was a bunch of black kids around with him too, and they said, well, how do you know that? Uh, how come you're talking to that white man? He goes, that's not a white man, that's Mr. Al. <laughs> so I was, you know, Mr. Al. Well, he's not a white man. He's Mr. Al. You know, uh, like it's a different category, right? Like, well, that race doesn't uh, matter with Mr. Al, right? He's like, well, he's a white a guy that does this. I'm a black guy, you know, because that's just Mr. Al. I get a lot of grief in my family. Um, I don't have anybody who's from Guatemala. They're from Honduras. Okay. <laughs> my wife's from Honduras. Oh, she and, is. Okay. Uh, so I'll be, and my, my children are half Honduran. And okay. uh, so I, I get teased mercilessly for being the gringo in the house. Yeah. I'm, you know, for not having enough melatonin, you know, you name it. But uh, to me, again, it was interesting to me with my son. I didn't really notice. Um, you know, I, I, I knew he was I knew he was half Hispanic. I knew that he was Hispanic and he, he looks more Hispanic than my daughter. And then one day I looked at him and realized that people would treat him differently. It just had never occurred to me that he would be treated differently. And I noticed it once recently. And, and I, as a father, you know, just a surge of anger went through me when I saw someone looking at my precious son as less than fully human. Yes. And I didn't say anything because I, I couldn't prove it. I just, I felt it. I felt some hostility from someone and, you know, he'll, he'll have to deal with that. Luckily, he's a very confident, he's a big, strong kid and, He's confident, he's funny, and he's smart. And, you know, and he has a father who would run in front of a truck for him. So, or whatever vehicle was going to hit him. But, I would uh, too. And, I, and that's what they know. My, my son is 17. He gets snarky once in a while, but he teases me. And he goes, you're not bad for a white parent. You know, I mean, it's like the joke, right? And I go, well, you know, white people got some good things to his son. You know, he's always laughing, right? Uh, or I make a joke. One time I made a joke. Uh, I said, and he gets it. And I said, you know, don't worry, son, Trump can't build a wall. Your DNA can't climb. And he laughed and laughed and laughed. And, you know, so you, you, we look at the race part and we can put it in its pr proper perspective. It's nothing to, it does not touch love. It just doesn't, doesn't even have anything to do with it. Well, my son is 17 as well. Actually, both my children, I have a 17 year old boy and girl. Okay. Well, congrats. That's awesome. So, you know, um, uh, uh, one of the things in Pakistan where I started this school, and it's, it is run by Christians, um, but I, uh, once I get back over there, I'm going to meet with Baha'is that are going to come in and teach some virtues. So it's a non-denominational, uh, but you know, it's 98% Muslim there, and they don't really educate anybody that's not. And they, they wall off the ones that are poor in slums. They don't eat. They don't get any clean water, any of that. It's just awful. And so we started a school that opened up there, and uh, it's teaching virtues, and it has a Bible study and, and Urdu and so on. And we invite everybody in. Um, but even the fact that I made it non-denominational, I said, okay, you guys have your denomination, but will this at least has to be non-denominational? Um, I couldn't get any denomination in the United States to back it. They would say, well, that's not our denomination. I'm like, really? Really? You're a Christian? You tell yourself you're a Christian school and you won't even do your own non-denomination, much less educate someone that's not. So that's where we're losing. That's where we need to get that message. We're all together in this. Well, that's a, that's a long conversation. Agree with you a thousand percent. We have run out of time. Thank you guys. Have a good night, everybody. And everybody, my challenge to you is just heal one heart, your own. And have a good night, everybody. Thank you.